this is really just a question of us opening our hearts and allowing the sound of Krishna's name to do its magic. So, you go into your own space and let's just chant for a while on beads. Anyone uncertain about how to chant? You know, first and third finger, starting from the first beat to the right of the mountain beat? Yeah? Alright, so, sitting comfortably and um, at your own pace, or you're welcome to follow my pace if that's more convenient for you. So I start always by offering a prayer to my teacher, Namaha Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swamiti Namaste Saraswati Gauravani Prachari Vinavishesha Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare Hare Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare Hare Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare Rama Hare Rama Rama Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare 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 Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare 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 Rama, Hare Rama, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare 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 Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare 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 Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare Rama, 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 Hare
Right about now, if your uh, mind has wandered to things, um, it's okay. Just pull it back now. Just come back to the sound of the chant. Just try to hear the sound without any mental distraction. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Krishna Hare Ram. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, 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 Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, 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 Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Krishna Krishna Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna Krishna Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna Krishna Krishna, Hare 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 Ram, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare Ram, Hare Ram. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Ram, Hare Ram, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, 
Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama. Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama. Nama Chintamani Krishna's Chaitanya Rasa Vidra. It's like a the name is like a touchstone. Chintamani is a spiritual gem. <laughs> it's, a, it's similar to the Philosopher's Stone. Have you heard of the Philosopher's Stone? Yes. The Philosopher's Stone is an um, alchemical stone. If you rub it on base metal, it will transform base metal into gold. <laughs> The equivalent, uh, it is the reflection in this world of the Chintamani, or spiritual gems, of which the homes in Vaikuntha, in the spiritual realm, are built. There are descriptions of what the eternal Paravyoma world looks like, and it's described there that um, every word is a song and every step is a dance. And the homes are made of chintamani, spiritual gems. <laughs> the trees are all kalpavreksha, wish-fulfilling trees. In this world, a tree can only give you its particular fruit. In the eternal realm, trees can fulfill all desires. Devotees in that world don't have selfish desires to fulfill, but still they may have desires to serve Krishna in a particular way and the Kalpavreksha trees help. If you go to Vrindavan in this world, in India, the trees there are worn smooth from all of the hugs and caresses that people have bestowed on the trees in Vrindavan because the trees are great devotees. And so people are always hankering after their association. Beautiful um, culture, very unlike the one that we've been brought up in. <laughs> We're a little crude. <laughs> we wouldn't quite know how to behave if we were to enter that spiritual realm just now. So really what's happening in bhakti is that we're cultivating character. We're cultivating spiritual character. 
It was, in fact, one of the great problems or objections that the residents of Vrindavan had when my teacher Prabhupada came to the West. In the, in the classic texts, we Westerners are called Mleches and Yavanas. Basically, we're untouchable. <laughs> Not in the good sense, either. Um, we're from the land of the Pistachas and the, you know, the, the, the meat-eating, filthy people who don't even know how to keep themselves properly clean. Yeah, you think about it, there's some truth to that. So when Prabhupada came here and began initiating people, we're going to have a talk next Sunday uh, with Lady Ruth about the guru and disciple relationship. Um, when Prabhupada came and started making disciples here, giving diksha or formal initiation, the people in Vrindavan village, his god brothers and god sisters and the people who live in Krishna's land, were actually very concerned. They wondered, will this spoil our beautiful Vrindavan? You know, will, this, will this compromise our culture? If you allow people in who don't have devotional manner and the proper kind of breeding and training, they can wreak havoc. You know, we've had the experience here at Jiva Mukti of people who come and then we find out afterwards that perhaps they're not fully qualified to teach and we've had, we have to say, we have to ask you to please leave because their behavior is not up to the mark. So in, the, the, in Krishna's realm, it is such an elegant world. It's such a uh, gentle person's world that uh, at first they were very concerned. You know, and uh, truth be told, when, when my generation, not me in particular, but people of my age who joined Krishna consciousness back in the 60s, first went over to India in the late 60s or 1970. We didn't really know how to behave there, and it, it was a disturbance. You know, wearing the robes, but then doing foolish, you know, hippie-like childish things. You know, the... cart would be taking somebody somewhere and they would reach out and grab a fruit off of a fruit seller's stand or something like that. And they came to Prabhupada and complained and they said, you know, this is our livelihood. And if they don't have any money, if they would ask us, we would give them the fruit. That's Vrindavan. That's Vrindavan. Not that if you don't have any money, you can't have a piece of fruit if you need one. system is also in India that you never fully harvested your entire field. You always left. It's there in Judaism also. I forgot the word for it. They, they always leave a certain amount of the harvest so that people of lesser means can come and have food. They'll collect it and they'll make Siddhaka. good use. Huh? Sadaka. Sadaka. Thank you. Yeah. That's, that's tradition in, in any 
faith culture than any spiritually oriented civilization is that you know you take care of people always take care of people so they complained to him and he said look I kindly help me to train them you know kindly help me now it's different in those days the residents of Vrindavan would never even accept prasadam food prepared by these western devotees it was considered inedible you couldn't actually offer it to Krishna. That the standard, when we offer things on the altar, the standard is meant to be of a very high Brahminical caliber. The real standard for doing the kind of offerings that we do here are as follows. First of all, you take a shower, you bathe. You cannot approach the altar without being clean. And you chant mantras so that you're clean internally as well as externally. You have to wear a clean cloth. You have to have been twice initiated. Once is called Harinam initiation, that is the initiation into the chanting of the Krishna mantra. And the second initiation, which is known as Dvija, twice born or Brahminical initiation, means that you've demonstrated such high character that you are now qualified to approach the deity of Radha and Krishna. Not just anyone can do that. Here's another detail. Technically, we're not worshipping Radha and Krishna in the temples. Even though the form is Radha and Krishna, the reason why we worship in the mood of Lakshmi Narayan, that is to say, the goddess of fortune and the supreme Vishnu, which is not as intimate as Radha and Krishna, who are cowherds in a cowherd village, is that we're not that advanced. We can't approach Radha and Krishna yet in such an intensely loving manner that we would fully appreciate how it is that this little cowherd boy and his girlfriend are actually the supreme personality of Godhead in male and female form. So for neophytes, for beginners in bhakti, the mood of worship is one of awe and reverence. It's a formality that we approach with the archana padati system of offering the items, the articles of the arti ceremony on the altar. We decorate the deities or the altar nicely. It's a more formal kind of relationship. We're not ready to enter into that more intimate kind of worship of Krishna in his original cowherd form. That's for very, very, very advanced devotees. That's not just for anyone. So we keep a certain formality in the way we, we conduct the worship. So, Nama Chintamani Krishna's Chaitanya Rasa Vigraha. Krishna is known as Rasa Vigraha. He is the reservoir of all rasas, of all loving moods or exchanges. Whatever kind of love we seek, Krishna is capable of reciprocating that particular kind of love. And in the Bhagavad Gita, he says, People approach me from all different starting points. And they're looking for a reciprocation of love in their own unique particular way. As they approach me, whatever their mood is, I reciprocate with them. 
yeyatamam prapachante tamsta teva pajamiyaham. Pajami means as they worship, as they see me, whatever the quality of their love for me, that's how I'm reciprocating with them. So there's a gradual progression in bhakti life, in devotional life. You can't just love. <laughs> it's a nice sentiment, you know, but realistically, it doesn't work like that. Work is needed. Real love takes work and takes a lot of work. You know, to get to that place where you actually reached a point of your heart opening up to another person because you see Krishna in their heart. Because you see them as part and parcel of God no less than yourself. That takes some doing. That You don't just mouth the words. You know, and all of a sudden you're, you're there. It's a very disciplined life. The bhakti life is a disciplined life. And we talk about this a lot. How we love the image of where yoga can take us. We're not all that enthralled with the hard work part. <laughs> and and you know the, the the raw truth is that you know no pain, no gain. You know these these uh, uh, films where you've got you know. Uh, Mr. Miyagi, you know, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off, you know, and Karate Kid. Or, or uh, maybe more recently, uh, Uma Thurman and Kill Bill, you know, like, just keep hitting that stone. You know, it's like, what's this all about? I'm just getting bloody. Well, those are caricatures, obviously, but they're predicated on actual spiritual disciplines in different schools where... Uh, something is repeated over and over so that eventually you've mastered it. It becomes second nature. Why rise early, take a shower that's not hot water? I won't say take a cold shower, but it shouldn't be hot water because hot is a, uh, it's a, a stimulant and it also puts you back to sleep. You know, if you wake up in the morning, wake up. You know, you need to get your metabolic system going again. So generally, a, you know, medium to cool water is recommended. And then you sit down and you take your beads and you chant. Now in the beginning, the chanting is perfunctory. It's done because, well, that's what the spiritual master has said, and it's what the texts say, that I should chant a certain number of times every day regularly. Now this is not invented. This isn't just something that somebody came up with. It's there in the Bhagavad Gita. It's in the 10th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Yajnanam Japa Yajnyosmi. I am the chanting of the sacred Japa. So here's Krishna himself saying, this is me. I give myself to you in the form of these beads. And that same sense of devotion is inculcated going back to the very earliest Vedic texts. Bhakti is not a later development. There are some historians and, and Sanskritists who argue that we don't really see any bhakti in the ancient Vedic culture. We see bhakti more in the 16th century with Chaitanya. We see bhakti in more recent years. There's you know this resurgence of it. 
Well, the reason why you don't have it explicit in the ancient Sanskrit text, it's implied there. Narayanam paro vyaktat. I mean, there were verses you can quote from the Rig Veda, from the, you know, different Upanishads that specifically relate to the bhakti practice of loving devotion to a supreme being. It's there. But the reason it may not be emphasized is the same reason that if you're in medical school and you're reading an advanced textbook on neurology, you're not going to find the same lessons that were there in your first year of pre-med that's talking about how the blood flows through the different vessels, corpuscles, whatever. It's understood you will have learned that stuff already. We've gone on to a more specific topic of expertise. So just because something is not in a text doesn't mean that it's absent from that text. So bhakti is there, going back to the most ancient of the, of the Sanskrit, shruti, revealed scriptures. So this isn't invented, this japa process, this chanting of the whole names. Yeah. Um, don't the old ancient texts text the stories of like Shiva and Vishnu and Ram and walk around the earth and the culture? It was just implied that they were pious and devotional. It was part of their life from the merchant and the farmer to the king and the Brahmins. They all just lived their lives devotional. Oh, sure. There was a time when we didn't need yoga studios or ashrams or temples. The whole world was your temple. <laughs> you know, your village was your ashram. You know. And the relationship with nature and with the divine, with Krishna, the demigod, was evident to the simplest person. This was not some esoteric field of study just for the Brahmin priests the simplest person understood, I'm not my body, I'm an eternal soul, there's a supreme being, there's a great mystery to this universe, I'm a part of that greater reality. These things were common knowledge. We have so, we're so stripped of that knowledge today, we're, we're so devoid of it, that it's esoteric to us, but it wasn't in, the, in, in those earlier times. So, uh, again, just going back to this verse, Nama Chintamani Krishna's Chaitanya Ras, the, the name of Krishna is like a touchstone, it's like a Chintamani stone. It is transformative by its nature. The, the sound of Krishna's name purifies consciousness. It has an active influence on the way we think, the way we behave, our emotions are changed by this chanting. And the more you chant, the more that cumulative effect will be experienced. You don't need anything else, actually. If you just go on chanting, everything will come from that. Everything is revealed just from the chanting. So... It's a lovely way to start our classes here. All right. Now, any questions? How's everybody doing? Yeah. 
Um, there's a Sankirtana, actually, I think what you're repeating to us is in the Sankirtana, isn't it? Da 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 da, Chitadanya, da 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 da. I can't do the rest of the words, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's really like how the, you know, some of the songs, I, I can't, but I, I feel like I've heard that line. There, well, there, yes, there, uh, Chaitanya, who uh, is the most recent scheduled avatar, that is to say, he wasn't just someone who presented himself as an incarnation of God, but his appearance was foretold in the re revealed texts, was enamored of chanting a particular verse. Hari Nama, Hari Nama. In Kali, in the age of Kali, our current era, cosmic era, there's gatir um, anyata, there's no other way of reaching self-realization except Harinam, Harinam. He says it three times. Harinam, Harinam, Harinam. So, yeah, he was insistent that this is the prescribed method. And he would also, he and his disciples, who were erudite scholars, would cite references from the revealed text. For example, I quoted this to you before in the, in the Srimad Bhagavatam, or Bhagavat Purana, in the... Uh, I believe it is the eleventh canto of the twelve cantos or divisions. There's a verse, Kaler Doshnade Rajan, Asti Heko Mahanguna, Kirtana Deva Krishnasya, Mukta Sangha Paramvraja, Mukta, achieving Mukta in this age of Kali, Kaler Dosha, Nide Rajan. So this is a sage speaking to a king, my dear Maharaj. Kaler Dosha in this age of Kali, Kaler Dosha Nide Rajan, Asti Heko Mahaguna. There is so many faults in this age, but there is one Mahaguna, there's one really good quality. And what is that? Kirtanad eva Krishnasya, Mukta Sangha Paramvajan. All of the benefits of the processes of self realization that had been prescribed and prominent in previous eras when circumstances permitted a very different kind of spiritual life can be achieved in this age by the simple process of chanting. The Hare Krishna Marcha. right way and a wrong way to chant and the way you're describing and recommending is the absolute right way by putting yourself into the chanting the chanting should not be mechanical it shouldn't be done in such a way that it's uh, a chore you know, there, there's a frame of mind and a frame of heart to be cultivated as you chant these names and that was also described by Chaitanya by the way in, he never left any written work behind him, but he did leave what are called the Shikshastika prayers. And in those prayers, he describes what is the proper mood for chanting. Uh, he says, uh, one can chant the holy names of the Lord 
in a humble frame of mind, thinking oneself lower than a straw in the street, more tolerant than a tree, and ready and willing to offer all respect to others while requiring none for oneself. In such a frame of mind, one can chant the holy names of the Lord constantly. That's the, the mood of a Vaishnava. That's the mood of a devotee of Krishna. Yeah. That's a very good question. Why, why are we in the age of Kali? Why must there be an age of Kali? Yeah, I understand why I'm here because of my karma, but why is there an age of Kali? Uh, huh? Well, that's a nice way of describing it, you know, to achieve balance. But it almost begs the question. You could say, couldn't we achieve balance in a better environment? You know, does it ha- did it have to get this bad for us to achieve the balance that we need in life? Think of it this way. If you contract a cold, it, um, it can probably be remedied rather easily just through proper diet, some medicinal intervention, rest, plenty of liquids, you know the routine. If you neglect it, your cold can become exacerbated and might become pneumonia. At that point, your life is at risk. And if you neglect getting medical attention, that pneumonia can become fatal. Oh, it also can be a risk to other people. Oh, that's a very good point. Sure, you become infectious. So it deteriorates if it's not attended to. Well, in the same way, things started off in the Satya Yuga, in very healthy conditions, if you will. But because there was some neglect, there were then souls who found themselves appearing, if you will, in the Treta Yuga, where conditions were a little bit more difficult. If your spiritual life continued to go unattended, you might find yourself in the Dvapura Yuga. And if you're still inattentive to your spiritual life, New York, New York. Here we are. So it's due to inattention. Uh, The silver lining there, if you will, is that everyone's going to go back to Godhead eventually. Everyone will go back to Godhead. I mean, Krishna is not so callous that he wants to see people suffer. The question is, how long will it take you? We have all of eternity to do it. So the idea of chanting and following behavioral guidelines and prescriptions and doing the study is basically to save time. You know, by doing it as the way as Rodney was describing, by instead of just mechanically chanting, if you put yourself into it, you really commit to it, then it becomes effective and can happen quickly. You get Krishna consciousness, you know, full self-awareness, to know Krishna is actually not a difficult thing, but it requires sincerity. You can be talking with Krishna. The deity of Krishna and the Krishna Rumi, that deity will talk with you 
if you're sincere. You know, this isn't some empty ritual. It's empty ritual if all you're seeing is an empty ritual. If you're bringing your heart to it, then it's an experience of God. Very good. What There's no situation that's so complex, so problematic, so painful, or so um, reprehensible. There's nothing that you can do that's so humiliating and degrading that it cannot be completely reversed by sincerely chanting the Hare Krishna mantra. You never lose your divinity. You never lose your spiritual quality. The soul can become covered over, but you do not become matter. No matter what age it is, no matter how criminal your, your behavior may be, the soul retains its intrinsic spiritual qualities. That's never lost. What we're doing is reviving it. We're bringing it back out. Which is why I, it's a little frustrating when you know, people have the keys to the kingdom you know, and they come to Jiva Mukti and they just kind of skim the surface. They skim in and they skim out. <laughs> you know, you know, instead of having an opportunity to really grasp that deeper treasure that's being offered to them it's there it's there it's inherent in, in the yoga but you have to want it you have to be looking for it you have to really want it and that's our role as teachers is to stimulate that desire in our students to go deeper into their practice and deeper into their understanding of the real purpose behind yoga which is love of God okay um <clears throat> Let's let's uh, let's read the next verse in the fourth chapter. So, if you would open, please, to hmm. text three on page one eighty four. So, the invocation that we chant before reading Bhagavad Gita is Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Please repeat Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo 
भगवते वासुदेवाय नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय सहीवायम मया थे ध्या सहीवायम मया थे ध्या योगा प्रोक्ता पुरातन योगा प्रोक्ता पुरातन science of the relationship with the Supreme is today told by me to you because you are my devotee as well as my friend and can therefore understand the transcendental mystery of this science. Here's the purport or commentary by Srila Prabhupada. There are two classes of men, namely the devotee and the demon. Or non Demon is a harsh term but it refers to the asura class meaning people who have become so materialistic that they don't even have room on their radar screen for considering some kind of spiritual dimension to life. It's a problematic position to be in. So there are these two classes that Prabhupada's pointing to. The Lord selected Arjuna as the recipient of this great science, owing to his being a devotee of the Lord. But for the demon, it is not possible to understand this great mysterious science. I once asked Prabhupada, do we, can't we find some other word? <laughs> and we, we talked about it. And he's like, well, what would you suggest? You know, says he. <laughs> or, or, you know, um, the naive. You know, or the indifferent. Or, um, and as we went through these very alternatives, we realized, well, someone may be naive, that doesn't really describe if they're hurtful. Or if someone is uh, ignorant, they have no spiritual training, that doesn't necessarily describe why um, they're, um, you know, addicted to. So, I mean, there, there were shortcomings every step along. They said, no, they're demons. <laughs> so that's the word that Krishna uses. So It's unfortunate, though, because I think it projects a certain kind of um, draconian... Dividing, yes, green skin and orange kind of. Um, all right, so, uh, but for the demon, it is not possible. I think the point being that Krishna is uh, speaking with Arjuna, he's talking with Arjuna, not because Arjuna is a great Sanskritist, he's not a great pundit, he's not a Brahmin, you know, he's born into a Chatriya family, a, a military clan. Um, 
but his qualification is that he loves Krishna. That's his qualification. So if in a sense you want to say those who are antithetical to God fall into this other category. So there are a number of editions, Prabhupada writes, of this great book of knowledge. Some of them have commentaries by the devotees, and some of them have commentaries oh by the demons. <laughs> Again, very strong language. He's referring specifically... Now, there's, there's a serious side to this. He's referring to specifically to the Mayavada commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita. The what? Oh. Mayavada commentaries. Those commentaries... For example, Dr. Radhakrishnan's edition, which was the only one available when Prabhupada first came to New York in 1965. So he would sometimes use that book in his classes at 26th Second Avenue. And he would read where Radhakrishnan says, it is not to Krishna. Krishna says, Bhaktosi, because you are my devotee, surrender unto me, love me, think of me. And Radhakrishna writes... Esther Krishna was the first vice president of India. His edition says, it is not to the person Krishna whom we must give ourselves, but to the impersonal, unmanifest, speaking through Krishna. That's the kind of language that drove Prabhupada absolutely crazy. He's a Vedantist. A Shankarite Advaita Vedantist, exactly. And the interpretation there is, well, Krishna may say, love me, but he really means something else. <laughs> well, why is he saying it then? You know, why, is he, why doesn't he just say, surrender to the unborn speaking through me? He doesn't say that. And says, he says, Brahmanohi pratishtaham amritasya avyajasit. I am the foundation of that Brahman impersonal energy. That emanates from me. That's the effulgence from Krishna's body, that impersonal energy. You know, that light, you know, we talk about the light merging with the light, that's an effulgence that has a source. What is the source? It's Krishna's body. Doesn't he say in chapter 10, he's like, I am Vishnu, I am Shiva, I am Brahman, I am... All of, the, all of these emanations flow from I'm evil, Krishna. I'm good, I am... Source, source of all creation. So, therefore, if Prabhupada groups all the non-devotional editions of Bhagavad He's not saying that only his book is the right one. What he's saying is there are some commentaries by, you know, all the acharyas have written their commentaries on Bhagavad Gita. Ramanujacharya's commentary, Madhvacharya's commentary, uh, Vishnu Swami's commentary, uh, you know, Baladevidyabhushan's commentary on Bhagavad Gita. These are all authorized personalist commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita. But then you have these others, who choose to negate the personality of Krishna. That's unacceptable to a Krishna devotee. It's basically saying that Krishna, he, he's not a person. He's a non-entity. He's nothing. Now, if you love somebody, and I say the person you love is nothing, how does that make you feel? No. It's insulting. So he's using strong language because it's insulting to Krishna. Commentation by the devotees is real, whereas that of the demons is useless. Arjuna accepts Sri Krishna as the supreme personality of Godhead. And any commentary on the Gita following in the footsteps of Arjuna is real devotional service to the cause of this great science. So any edition of the Gita that supports the devotional siddhanta or conclusion of the teachings 
is an acceptable addition of the Gita. The demonic, however, do not accept Lord Krishna as he is. Instead, they concoct something about Krishna and mislead general readers from the path of Krishna's instructions. Here is a warning about such misleading paths. One should try to follow the disciplic succession from Arjuna and thus be benefited by this great science of Srimad Bhagavad Gita. There's almost a kind of beautiful spiritual pride that's coming through here in these words, where Krishna, where Prabhupada is saying, um, let this be a warning to you. Be very, very careful. You know, what, what the addition of a text that you read is important. You don't just pick up any addition. You know, authors have their particular take on things. <laughs> you know, and if you, you know, if you read the wrong edition, you can get a, a distorted idea, you know, a, a, a filtered idea, because the author has an agenda. So here, this is, which is why Prabhupada has titled his edition of Gita, As It Is. As It Is. Meaning, I'm not trying to sell you my philosophy. I'm nothing. I'm a conduit for Krishna's teaching. So this is as it is, without change. Right? Very important verse in the Bhagavad Gita. So any questions about that? Any thoughts? Well, hold on just for a moment. Let's see if anyone else has some well, questions. Is, it like, is this um, as it is? Like, this is the Bhagavad Gita translated version of this person? You know what it is? Well, as it is means as Krishna has presented it, and as the great acharyas or authorities in the bhakti school have transmitted it over the generations. So it has, you know, in, in, in antiques, it would be called provenance. You know, how do you know that an antique is real? Well, here are the papers. Here's the provenance of this piece of art or antique. So you can have some comfort, confidence, paying the money to buy this thing, that it's real, it's authentic, because it's got the credentials. And it's all made up. Huh? And it's, and it's all made up. Well, um, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Um, like, the, the value of something. It's not about antiques. Well, it was an analogy. You know, it was an analogy. You know, it's, I wasn't comparing the Bhagavad Gita to a collectible <laughs> set of drawers. Did you have Strauch on that? And um, probably stolen from Jews during World War II that were art books. You know, when they were trying to trace the provenance, and someone would say, I had this fantastic piece of art. And they'd say, Do you realize it was actually looted in such and such family? And sure. that was important to establish the provenance because that was in the family that had read it. <laughs> and it's so actually. Yeah. It's, it's, that's a very, very good analogy. Just as stolen art needs to be reappropriated and returned to its original owners, so Krishna's teachings need to be brought back away from the hands of usurpers and those who would misuse those teachings for their own purpose and restored back to its original bhakti purpose. Very nice. Very <laughs> good example. This is where it gets tricky. Well, only because Krishna is, you know, coming out here. Right. You know, he's, he's, he's saying, here I am. 
Yeah, right now. He's getting religious. Right, exactly. Well, the important part here is where Krishna says, Bhaktosi made. Bhaktosi. Because you're my bhakta, because you're my devotee. And Sakha Chaiti, Sakha, I mean, you're my friend. I mean, it all comes down to this. I mean, if there's any message in the Gita, if you want to know how do you get enlightenment, get close to God. <laughs> you, know, you know, how do you get self awareness? Become God's devotee and friend. He can give that, Krishna can give that. You can't get it on your own. There's nothing that you can do that will make you enlightened. That, that's, that's, a, that's a mistaken idea. That somehow you're going to become enlightened because you're going to try really hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it's, it's not, that's, that's welcome to, you know, market culture. Everything, including enlightenment, is a commodity. And if I just have the right amount of cash, I can get it, you know. So enlightenment is not material knowledge. It's 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 revealed knowledge. What do you need to do? How do we become qualified for that revelation to take place? How can these words on a page become part of our conscious awareness of ourselves in the world? Bhaktosi me sakacheti. Become Krishna's friend. And that's a pretty nice proposition. Sorry, it's one of those nights that I um, I've been talking to a couple of people, and we've been talking about this chapter, and also um, how to get closer to Krishna, and what we talked about is, I think it's the focus of the month, too, for our practice, Satsang. That's why, sure, that's why I think this discussion about the guru-disciple relationship next Sunday is very timely, because the focus of the month is on satsang. You know, and then Purnim has been very kindly you know, pushing for getting a better understanding of, of what sangha is. What is sadhu? Satsang is the shortened form of sadhu sangha. The, the, the association, the company of sadhus, people who have you know, who are dedicated to Sat, the eternal. Not just anybody's company, but the company of people who have sincerely committed themselves to wanting the same thing, to become devotees of God, you know, to become fully awakened in their knowledge of themselves as spiritual beings. That's the most rare treasure in the world that kind of association. And the greatest gift that the spiritual master provides a disciple is the company of other disciples. Single greatest gift. There are two kinds of... I mean, it's a little preview. <laughs> uh, you know, there are, there are many kinds of spiritual masters. There are many, many kinds of gurus. They're not all diksha. They're not all initiating gurus. 
more relevant to our lives are the shiksha guru. Shiksha guru means an instructing teacher. An instructing teacher does not have to be a self-realized, you know, enlightened being. An instructing teacher is someone like us in the sense of on the path to full Krishna consciousness, full spiritual awakening, who has achieved a level of fluency in personal practice and knowledge of the scriptures and the philosophy that empowers that individual to be a mentor to others. That person can take you as far as she or he has gone herself or himself. So there's a responsibility on your part to be able to properly assess where is this person in the devotional line? How much can I reasonably expect this person to be able to guide me? The concern arises that we're, some people are so desperate, you know, they're so hurt by life in the material world, they're so damaged, that they come to spiritual life and they, they just, they, they want it. They want it out of their suffering so desperately that they grab onto someone as their guru and they make that person their whole life. Demigod. Elevate them to the level of a demigod, if you will. And, and the, you know, the, the tragedy of that is that nobody can fulfill those expectations. That's so unreasonable, so unfair. And the consequence of that is that they become disappointed and they fall back again into their old habits and their old life. You come... You're disappointed. I was talking with somebody recently who's saying, you know, I've been doing my spiritual practice and, and I'm, it's not working. It's just not working. So you dig a little further. Well, what's not working? Well, really what's not working is I'm not buying into the BS anymore. Well, what do you mean? Well, you know, the people who have been telling me these things, look at them. Mm. You know? And, and where's, the, where's the warmth of, you know, the milk of human love and affection? It's not there. So that tragedy is that, you know, when, you, when you're expecting something so elevated and so beautiful and then you don't get it, then the whole thing is, the whole thing is a lot of BS. And you go back to the material world throwing the transcendental baby out with the bathwater. So instead of, instead of risking that, inform yourself. You have to have a grounding in, in, in knowledge. The foundation of spiritual life is Prabhupada once held up two fingers like this. Hmm. He said, intelligence and the soul are this close. Two fingers right next to it. The, the soul and intelligence are this close. Don't think that you can just do your asanas and you're going to progress spiritually. You may progress physically, you may progress mentally, but you're not going to progress spiritually without having a grounding in what the philosophy behind the yoga is all about. It can't happen. It's a contradiction in terms. So you have to go inside the, the understanding. And what that will also do is equip you to not make the mistakes of 
exaggerating anticipations from someone and then being disappointed and then falling away. If you know what's reasonable, then those things won't happen. May I also offer that uh, discernment is not necessarily also included in the yoga package that's sold to us in the West, which is why we've had some issues come up. Um, I'm sorry, the discernment the is... Discernment to an, I mean, in a way... It's not like, usually part of it? It's not, it's not put into that. When you do yoga, yeah. you want to have those open arms and open heart. Discernment right. is important because when you open your heart right. and you read spiritual texts, don't just take everything in and kind of go, well, you know... Look, let, let's, yeah. let's be very candid. Yeah you know, and realistic here. As soon as something becomes institutionalized, as soon as it becomes a business, it needs to be financed, it needs to be maintained, it needs to grow, it needs to be marketed, it needs to, to be differentiated from other such businesses, and a whole new set of criteria enter into the administration of that product. If the product here is a yoga class, then that product needs to be packaged and sold. Now, th that's a function of the culture that we're in. That's not necessarily in and of itself wrong. What's wrong is if those market principles are allowed to replace the heart and soul of what is being presented, then you're in trouble. Then you're, then you're in difficulty. There's no harm charging a fee for a yoga class. That may not be the way it was in traditional India. You never charged a fee for teaching. You know, I, I have to live with the fact that I'm invited to teach someplace and I end up negotiating fees. It's very embarrassing. It's very embarrassing. But it is the nature of the culture that we're living in that without that, people aren't going to do like they did in the olden days when you would come and they would come, they knew that that was, you come with an offering. You bring something to your teacher. You come to Saguru Meva Abhigachachet. You come to the Guru with something in your hands. You know, whatever you could afford. You know. So that's not the system now. So the the risk is when we get nervous about the material side of this, and those anxieties over paying the bills and managing the staff and, you know, upkeep and replacements and repairs and all that kind of stuff overshadows the greater mission. And that's a risk wherever you go. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate. It's not because there isn't goodwill of some kind. Because people are, you know, just business people with no concern for people's well-being. It says that these things have to be properly balanced. And the way to properly balance it is by never losing sight of what is the foundation, the yogic foundation in, in knowledge and texts so that the teachings are never compromised. That's the problem. Is when you start compromising the teachings, then you're in trouble. That's, that's, where, that's why Krishna says in another couple of verses, I got to come back again to reestablish the parampara. He comes back because we allow the underpinning of wisdom to be stripped away and then he's got to come back and set it up all again. Yeah. So you're saying also another way of, of uh, what we just read tonight, this verse, um, that uh, how Prabhupada 
But well, it's got, it gets away, it can even translating something like this can get away from the heart and soul. Sure, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That is correct. Yes, you've understood his use of that rather harsh word. Yeah. That's exactly correct. When we allow other considerations to take precedent over love for Krishna and what Krishna is trying to present for the well-being of humanity. When we allow something to compromise that, that is demonic. And there the word I think is actually quite appropriate because it means that you're hurting other people. Now that may not be your conscious intent, but by stripping Krishna away from the teachings and from the yoga, you're causing harm. It's himsa. It's violence. And that's demonic. Yeah. I would say in this book here, I would say this is written about Krishna. This whole book is actually inspired by Gita. Mm -hmm. What he's saying, I would say that as far as Krishna is, like a, it's already grounded. It is what it is. He's telling you to practice yoga and you will find it. Christ would say, this love is love one another is that love you. You explain Krishna says love me. Christ is love you. Know, you give me, I love you. And I realize that this book here is actually inside. He's telling you to practice, and that this is love. This is my opinion. Mm -hmm. That this is what it all is about. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Ultimately, it's about the love that binds us, which is what yoga means, the union between the soul and the super-soul, between us and Krishna, or the divine, God. Absolutely, that's what it's all about. And when that's taken away, all they're left with is husk. They're just left with the shell. And there's nothing particularly fulfilling or rewarding in that. So that's why, as far as I'm concerned, no... Passing an examination about the Bhagavad Gita should be required before anyone is awarded teacher certification. I don't think that you should just go through 200 hours of asana classes and do a pass-fail test of, of teaching people those asanas, and then you get your certification and you can go open a school somewhere. That, that, you that's, think what? That people should... That sounds unreasonable to me. To get a test on studying this. Yeah. You're not allowed to go drive a car before you understand what the rules are. It's not just a function of can you push the gas. You have to know what are the rules. What are the regulations that guide the functioning of a vehicle on the road so that you don't hurt anybody else. So that you know what, what, what the underpinnings of that transportation are. You have to pass tests. Is that why it is referred to here as the transcendental mystery of the science? Absolutely. Not an art? Well, it's a <laughs> science in the way, in the sense that Prabhupada uses the word is an artistic science. It's science in the sense that you're ex practicing, you're experimenting mm -hmm. on yourself. You are the laboratory. But there's a method to it. There is a method. There's that is correct. Like Absolutely. Yes. Science in the sense that there is a, a discipline process. to it, there's a process to it, and that is the way that you have to conduct that if you are looking to get the desired outcome. It must be conducted according to those principles. That's right. Very good. Um, Last question, then yes. we're going to have our... In, in yoga, philosophy is an integral part. Well, not just philosophy, but you know, um, speaking as a yoga teacher, I feel incomplete without having had 
this book to, to read before I went to teacher training. I had heard about the Bhagavad Gita and I had known Krishna's devotees, but I hadn't really connected that my yoga practice, my desire to become a teacher, was integrally is tied to this. And the same way, the only similar thing I could say is um, not quite exact, but when a friend of mine decided to convert to Judaism, she went through every single step. She's Korean. And she decided to convert. And so there's a process and there's a reading and she was she was evaluated by the rabbi very thoroughly. I'm sure you want to do this. You have to come to the study. You have to practice. And she was so humiliated because her Hebrew was so imperfect and the rabbi yelled at her. And he would challenge her. And the same thing should happen that if you decide to go ahead and take on the responsibility of helping other people, you should know the text of yoga. And it can be challenging, but that's what gives you the idea of what you're, you're headed for. So that if you came to me and you said, what am I having some issues with something, something, I say, well, the Bhagavad Gita and this disciplic, you know, knowledge and this lineage, this thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, I can tell you, share with you, that you will be fine. Because you have to yeah, it's a love. Thank you. That was that's lovely. For a long time now, I've been noting down the points of connection between bhakti and asana. I think there's an article, if not a book, to be written about the connection. And, you know, for me, a successful asana class is where every gesture that I make is is, a, is an expression of love for Krishna. You know, if if my relationship with Krishna is at the foundation of my yoga, then I'm going to want to assume the most appropriate pose to the best of my ability. I'm going to want to make that something aesthetically beautiful. I'm going to make it the, the flow that establishes there is something that reminds me of this eternal relationship that I have with Krishna. And, and the, the gestures and poses themselves are different expressions of love. You're saying something in a loving way in each of those poses, whether it's you know, a warrior pose or whether it's a downward dog, whatever it may be, there's something there, whether it's the, the humility of placing yourself in downward dog, the humility of I, I bow before you, or I am prepared to fight for you. I mean, you know, connecting that, making that a personal experience. And there's something so wonderful about how those things could fit together. And I'm waiting for the day when someone teaches bhakti yoga. Mm-hmm. I'd really love to see one. Okay, thank you. Shall we have our... Ron, you have some? Yeah. When you were talking about enlightenment, um, well... I agree with you that I think you can't just be a teacher unless you really understand all the words that I'm saying about it. The enlightenment neither is born nor dies. It's sort of like a reveal, a reveal. You know, reveal. Yes, yes. It's, it's like as if this clouds part and you see the sun. It's not By, it, it is not the study that brings you the enlightenment. It's the sincerity you bring to the study. When your effort at study comes from the heart as an expression of your love for Krishna. Will Krishna not reciprocate? He says in the Gita, from me comes intelligence, remembrance, and forgetfulness. I, dwelling within the heart, 
I'm the one who reveals knowledge. If you're sincere, if you take a step toward Krishna, he's there for you. So your understanding of this will emerge by that sincerity. The effort has to be sincere. Yeah, absolutely. Guru, do you want to do art tonight? Sure. All right. I'll do the music. All right, here we go. <laughs>
forefathers here. This little sequence of photos represents teachers in the disciple line going back through time. So there's Prabhupada, his guru, Bhakti Siddhanta, his guru before him, Gorkishore, Gorkishore's guru, Bhakti Vinod, Bhakti Vinod's guru, Jagannath Das Papaji. Now we could have you know, a much longer line of images going all the way back through cosmic time to Krishna himself. But this is a sample representation of the Parampara system, of the line of teachers, which does include women teachers, by the way. It's not just men. It so happens that the past five were men. There are women leaders as well in the disciple line. There's a picture of Adhanath Swami, who is a current initiating guru. And uh, this picture here, this is a photo of the deities of Chaitanya in the middle, who brought the chanting of Krishna into uh, public, uh, public domain. Nityananda on his left, who is considered, these are considered the manifestations of Krishna and Krishna's brother Balaram. Nityananda was the chief organizer, if you will, of the Sankirtan chanting parties. So when the, in the 16th century in Bengal, when these parties first went out in public, it was Nityananda who would organize who's going to play the kartals, who's going to play the drums, who's going to sing, and he would appoint the parts, you know, you go over here, you go there. So that was Nityananda. We have um, the older guy here with the white beard is a Dvoita. A Dvoita is um, um, a resident of um, this area of India called Navadvi, where uh, Chaitanya appeared in uh, 1486. Uh, it was a Dvoita who saw how deteriorated things had become philosophically, in terms of behavior and so on. And he prayed to Krishna by worshiping the Tulsi bush. Mm. Would you please come? This, this could only be corrected if you come personally. So that's what Dvoita does. And then you have other people in the inner core of Chaitanya's mission. So that's this is called the Panchatattva, the five energies of Chaitanya's mission. So that's what that's all about. Like God's man. Yeah. <laughs> and this is called an almond. It's a kind of nut. Amazing grapes. Grapes, a kind of fruit. And if anybody wants to do arcade, if anyone's interested in learning how to do this, if you'd like to do it at home, for example, as part of your morning, Sadhana practice, I'd be happy to show you how to do it. Or in class, on two days. Alright, would you like to pass the almonds around? Thank you. And uh, Rodney, would you pass the grapes? Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. You do it so gracefully. <laughs>